Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I just had some Mount Hood, that's not Mount Hood, Hood strawberries in my fresh strawberry ice cream made in, in my kitchen. It was delightful. Can you say that, Desert Boy? How does that relate to a movie? It, um, because I'm, you brought up Mount Hood. I'm not even talking about Mount Hood. I'm talking about Mount St. <laughs> Helens. Oh, Mount Hood, Helens. Very different places, Andy. <laughs> what did you see? You have uh, you saw some things. So so we went and did a little, uh, um, a pair of films. We did a little uh, a duo of Love and Friendship, the new Kate Beckinsale movie. Terrific, wasn't it? And we saw, yes, it was terrific. And we saw The Lobster. Oh, the, the equally Colin terrific, film, please, which, please. Uh, absolutely loved. Ugh. Just really, that's definitely one worth talking a lot about afterward. And then, just to kind of complete the trilogy, since we had seen a Kate Beckinsale film and a Colin Farrell film, I said, hey, let's rent Total Recall. <laughs> <laughs> since it's got both of them in it. You, it's like a little trifecta. You had not seen it. <laughs> I hadn't. I had oh, not seen it. Dear. And, and I said, well, uh, we should see it. It's not going to be as good, but uh, let's watch it anyway. And so my wife slept through pretty much the whole thing. <laughs> I thought it was uh, pretty unnecessary. <laughs> um, I didn't hate it, but, you know, I really love the first one. And this one was like, oh, I don't know what they were trying to do here. And even the, the nods to the first one just felt like they were trying to find ways to wedge them in. It's all about context, that version. If it's late one night and you're alone and you are oh, yeah. probably nursing a fever, you are going to love that movie and it's going to be perfect and it's fine. That's good. I I have to say, I enjoyed watching that movie. It's a fun little romp uh, if you're not, you know, if you didn't pay 12 bucks for it. It's fine if you just separate it from Total Recall. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because right. you really need to divorce those two. I mean, and, and it's fine. I mean, I liked the the bit about the um, giant elevator through the planet. And yeah, that was the clever. Big, and the big, you know, climactic battle on it and stuff. I mean, you know, it was, it was an interesting little sci-fi twist. It wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but I still thought that was nice. I mean, I, I missed Mars, but at least they did something a little different, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, so anyway, but that was my trilogy. Lobster, I would say, is my favorite of the three, followed pretty closely by uh, Love and Friendship. And then way down below would be Total Recall. But you didn't manage to... Uh, see Sing Street. The timing for it was not working for me. It's only playing in one theater, and the timing just did not uh, favor me. So I I was not able to do that either, as evidenced by my X Men experience. But uh, I really really want to, and I'll tell you, the music is fantastic. If you haven't uh, checked out the the soundtrack, the music that they wrote for the thing, it is so perfectly of a piece for the '80s like Garage Band. Uh-huh. I can't. I mean, I can't get over it. It's it fits right in there with the Cure and Duran Duran, and I mean, it's just perfect. It's just perfect. Wow! And you will be you will absolutely be humming this music. And I haven't even seen the movie, and I'm 
I, we really enjoyed. It has become a regular uh, sort of background track for us here. It's all original, right? Or do they do covers of? No, other bands? well, I you know I don't know about the movie, but in the soundtrack there are a couple of tracks that are not um, from the band Sing Street that are original, and a couple. And so when you list it, like you'll uh, the Cure is on there, and the uh, well, let's see. Anyway, there are a couple that are that are not on there. Most of it is Sing Street is original stuff, and it's so gotcha. sort of peppered in there. You listen to it, it's like you can't even tell the difference. It feels like it's all of the era. Well, I need to see that one. Definitely need to. But unfortunately, the uh, I think the show times are, are getting narrower and narrower here, so I'm probably yeah. going to have to wait till it's uh, available to rent. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Guten Tag! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the next in our Fritz Lang series, this time his sort of noirish Nazi big game hunter romance, Manhunt from 1941. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever found yourself in the middle of an accent apocalypse... Then let's head to the East End for the next reel's Instagram. Hashtag Pony Bros. Hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's head to the forest in southern England to see if we can find the whole Games Master Stephen Smart has hidden away in to see if he'll tell us who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was The Colours from 1946, directed by Robert Siodmak and starring Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner. And this week's winner was at The Other Scotty. So congrats, you are entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks guys, and see you later. And we've got a blot spot, this time uh, on Fritz Lang's M. How'd we do? I think that uh, we've found a good series for Ben Lott. Ben says, M is another Fritz Lang film that was decades ahead of its time. A brilliant film that gets you to side with criminals and then question their actions an hour or so later. It has you hating a murderer and then feeling like he has been treated unjustly later. Peter Lorre has a speech for the ages and he expresses the emotions so clearly that I almost didn't need to read the subtitles to understand what he was saying. I just thought the strange moral at the end was an odd way to conclude the film. Your rank one hundred and nine, my rank seventy-one. Nice, yes, but he does and- he does answer the uh, the the burning question from last week. What is Ben Lott's O oh Brother block? That's right. Oh Brother is the one right in the middle of our uh, flick chart, so it's always the first thing that comes up for him. It's Caddyshack. Wow! If Caddyshack were my O oh Brother block, it would be much easier time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Just saying. All right, Andy. Uh-huh. Let's do trailers. So my trailer, Pete, is about a child who befriends a giant, or a giant who befriends a child. Either way, the two of them go on rollicking adventures together. Now, it is not the BFG, surprisingly, but you know how Hollywood (gasps) is. Shock and awe. (laughs) Hollywood loves to, uh, well, I shouldn't say Hollywood, but, you know, the film industry loves to pair... Uh, films together because you know what's more fun than watching two very similar films go neck and neck and see who does the best at the box office so of course in addition to the bfg we have a monster calls coming out which i gotta say looks like 
uh, a kind of a different tone than the BFG, which, you know, my daughter has read the book, the BFG, and uh, really loves that one, is very excited to see that one. This one, it does look kind of like a child fantasy, um, but there's a little more drama going on. This one is about a boy who seeks the help of a tree monster to cope with his single mom's terminal illness. Um, it does look kind of, I, I think the film that it actually most reminded me of was Pan's Labyrinth. I was just going to say that. That is exactly, exactly what I get out of this. Right. It's got that kind of balance between the the fantastical and then the horrors of what the child is going through in the present day and how kind of this fantastical world is a tool for the child to use to help cope with some of these big world issues. And I got to say, the tone of it was really something that appealed to me. The cast is great. Liam Neeson as the monster, as the voice of this giant. We've got Sigourney Weaver as grandma, Felicity Jones as mum. And it has Louis McDougall as Connor, the boy that uh, befriends this giant. He was also in Pan as Nibs. For the uh, ten oh, people who sure, saw that, sure, right? <laughs> of course, I absolutely remember that. <laughs> the tone of this, everything about this, looks really fascinating. I was a big fan of J. A. Bayona's previous film. I believe he was Juan Antonio Bayona at the time. He's the uh, Spanish director who did The Impossible and also The Orphanage. Um, I really liked The Impossible. I found it quite powerful, and I think that Bayona very strongly directed the uh, the relationship between mother and son in that film. And I was just so impressed by the way that that um, element of the story played out in that film. Here, I think there's going to be an equally powerful, well, I should say, I hope, an equally powerful relationship developed between uh, mother and son here. I, I think uh, Felicity Jones looks uh, great as this mother dealing with terminal illness and I don't know. I got to say, everything about it just got me really excited. What do you think? I feel like I saw the trailer for the BFG and Steven Spielberg and all this, and I, I knew what I was going to get. <laughs> you know, I knew uh-huh. I knew exactly what I was going to get. I adore a monster calls because I don't know what I'm going to get. I it's a monster. It's there's some ancient mysticism to it. Uh, Liam Neeson's voice is fantastic, but the tree was not given away uh, in the trailer. I love that. There's a bit of a nice uh, uh, secret to it, uh, and and so I feel like I'm I'm in a position to um, to really get a nice gift out of this film. Uh, you know, as a result of the the solid restraint shown in in this trailer. So I. I'm really excited about it. I guess for me, the question is, uh, with the BFG, I know I can take my kids to that one. This one, I don't know. I I don't think my son could go. Uh, You know, I feel like it's probably too heavy and dark for him. I think my daughter could probably handle it, but it's one of those ones where I feel like, you know, I may want to just kind of test the waters a little bit with it first. Yeah, the tagline on on the poster, you haven't seen a film like this since Kingsman, so... (laughs) <laughs> terrible. You're terrible. Anyway, this one opens up uh, here in the U.S. October 14th. It actually starts its release in Spain, October 7th, and it uh, plays around the world through uh, Germany in November 3rd is the last release date that's uh, listed right now. Mine? Well, it's a bioethicist's dream, Andy. <laughs> I'm talking, of course, about Morgan. Morgan is the story of a corporate risk management consultant who is put in the position of having to decide whether or not an artificial being's life should be terminated. 
this is a, a, a being that was made 100% created in a laboratory. We get a nice little bioethics uh, lesson in here. It also looks pretty darn thrilling. There's bloody handprints, requisite bloody handprints on a glass door. There's freaky voice through a vocoder. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, really, really stark uh, top lighting. Uh, this was directed by Luke Scott, uh, and I, I haven't seen anything that Luke Scott has directed. He this it looks like his first uh, major feature. He did an episode of The Hunger and Loom, a short film, in 2012. Um, he has been involved in a lot of other projects. Um, well, you know who he is. I don't. He's Ridley Scott's son. Oh, goodness. There you That's go. why all the stuff he's been involved is in. All is all Blade Runner stuff. Yeah, Blade it's Runner, all Making right. Of <laughs> and Exodus <laughs> right. Gods and Kings. And, exactly. oh, I'm so, yeah. Well, then that's it. There you go. Now I know. <laughs> I did not make that connection. <laughs> uh, so, you know, maybe that makes this all the more interesting. Uh, it, Coming from him, I, I don't know. I, but I, I, the trailer itself uh, looked intriguing enough uh, that it, it is something I, I feel like I want to see. see. Uh, Kate Mara, uh, Rose Leslie. Um, I guess Rose Leslie plays the Beast. Is that what we're calling it? We, uh, I guess we don't really know, right? It's pretty like a monster calls. They kind of obscure it. You don't really. Yeah. Know. I mean, it is just a teaser in this case. Right, right. You don't. You don't know. It is just a teaser. But but she. I do adore Rose Leslie. You know where we know her from. You know. You know nothing. You Jon know Snow. nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was her. Uh, yes. And so I'm very excited to see her on the big screen. Anna Taylor Joy, Jennifer Jason Lee. You know, uh, you ain't seen nothing since Rush. Paul Giamatti. Uh, is in this Toby Jones. Uh, it, it's you know, it's got people I like. How can you, go, you go truly, truly wrong? I like that uh, that she was also in an episode of Locked Up Abroad. <laughs> <laughs> gotta start somewhere. You gotta start Just somewhere, Jon Snow. Show. Just goes to show. That's fantastic. No, I, I love Rose Leslie, and and the trailer for this looks uh, or the teaser it really teases. I mean, I really want to see so much more. And I'm very excited to kind of get a better sense of this story. But I, I love the premise. It sounds very interesting. Uh, we don't have a lot of information on release. September 2nd, USA. Uh, September 8th, Brazil. And that's all that IMDb reports. So Cool. Andy, somewhere in Germany is a man with a precision rifle and the high degree of intelligence and training that is required to use it. They want all them blokes what are after you. You won't believe me when I tell you that I've never before laid eyes on any one of them. How'd you know they're after you then? <laughs> when one's been hunted, my dear child, one develops instincts. I've anticipated the pleasure of meeting you for years. I'm afraid I don't know. Like you, my dear Thorndike, I've had but one passion in life, and that is the hunting of big game. I'm afraid of the city, afraid of people I can't see. Where can you go if you can't get out of England? To a place where I can be invisible and they can't. Where nobody else can come near without my knowing it. Manhunt, Andy. 1941 war thriller. We have British big game hunter Captain Thorndike is vacationing in Bavaria. And the film literally opens with him getting Hitler in his rifle scope. Uh, and that's just where it starts. Directed, of course, by Fritz Lang, written by Jeffrey Household. Uh, Jeffrey Household wrote the novel uh, that this was based on. Dudley Nichols wrote the screenplay. Stars, among others, Walter Pidgeon, Joan Bennett, George Sanders. Uh, 
You had not seen this one either, yeah? No, I hadn't. Yeah. I hadn't. Um, this was an interesting one. Um, I think I ended up finding it more interesting to watch and reflect on its place in history um, than I ended up enjoying the film itself. Um, that I, I mean, I had a lot of problems with the story and some of the acting and stuff. That being said, there is something really interesting about watching Fritz Lang's film that um, that even when it's a film that I don't completely click with, it is a film that is still just really easy to watch. I, I This was a very easy to watch film. I found it very interesting to look at. I enjoyed kind of the overall story. It's just some of the specifics that I kind of struggled with. I'm right with you. I think that the the whole st- the story and the thematic elements uh, and the context of where this film fits in contemporary history, uh, history at the time, I think it was really moving and important and worth noting. As a film... Uh, it it falls apart so quickly, uh, and it it is not able to stand on the work of its central character actors. I, I just find that their portrayal of these characters it just falls apart. So, I have I, I have trouble. I have more trouble with it than uh, than um, happy happy fun times. Yes, I completely agree. The uh, the film you know I talk about contemporary history. It's 1941 was a you know it was a big year. Yeah, there's a little film called Citizen Kane that came out that year. And 1941. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so uh, this this film tells the story. It's set in a period of, of very recent history to the film's release, right? It, it is set and released immediately before the U.S. enters uh, World War II. It was produced during the period after uh, the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939 and began the, the Nazi uh, regime uh, march across Europe. And so we're in this really crazy historical political period that this film is exists within. And it tells the story of exactly that time, right? So we are looking at a film that's telling the story of immediately before the Nazis uh, invade Poland. They are literally hours away from invading Poland uh, at the start of the film. It tells a story of this big game hunter. The very first uh, sequence is him laying down in the brush looking at Hitler. Did that have an impact on you as you were watching it? I thought that was probably the most impactful moment of the film, just seeing that at the very beginning. And then, um, I, I don't know, it was so interesting to kind of watch this guy, you know, this hunter lay down on this cliff, you know, look through his sights. And through his sights, you see Adolf Hitler. He is staring at the man through his sights, ready to take the shot. He pulls the trigger, and the gun just clicks. And it's like, wow, that's really kind of shocking. And then he kind of does his little, you know, kind of nod and uh, in his little salute, like, uh, you know, is you know, is <laughs> is a, a good game, good game, old chap, sort of thing. Um, it was really interesting, and I kind of it was almost a little shocking that 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 was his action. And I couldn't quite figure out what this guy was doing. I'm like, who in their right mind would do that? Even in the period, I, you know, I struggled to kind of put two and to get two together. And then he kind of changes his mind and he puts a bullet in and he lays down and he's going to take the shot. And of course he gets caught at that point. It was such an incredible way to kind of get a film going. I, I just wished so much that the whole film could have held up as strongly as that moment did. And I think there are elements that work really well. I, I enjoy, uh, you know, uh, Keeve Smith, uh, played by George Sanders. I thought he was a really kind of sadistic, um, evil man, and I enjoyed him. 
for the most part, I enjoyed just kind of the way that his character operated. Um, I did enjoy the whole concept of the manhunt and a lot of the elements that went along with that. But yeah, it was such a strong open and it really impacted me. And I just kind of wished that the whole film was able to hold up that well. There are these shows that I see today, right? And I, Breaking Bad, again, is the one that, that comes to mind. It's as if the writers are sitting in this room and they're, they intentionally put themselves in such a compressing, tight, sealed box. They write themselves into this box that you have no conceivable way how they could possibly possibly go anywhere from there. You know, that's the open of this film for me. It opens at what is ultimately a fantastic climax of any other movie, right? The protagonist gets Hitler in his sights. Where do you possibly go from here? I loved that. I am right with you. I love that bit. Apart from Sanders just Plum giving up on his accent in the first five minutes. What? I think he only has a German accent when he's speaking German. Once he <laughs> once he switches over to English, it's it's all just British again. He doesn't sound German anymore. Which is so <laughs> it's so stupid in a movie where they make this American sound ridiculously British later in the film. Like if you're going to commit to accents, commit. You know. Yeah. Anyhow, he. I thought you were. You're absolutely right. He is diabolical, and he is the central sort of um, focal point for many of the the larger issues of that this film presents. Uh, the the you know use of violence, the use of torture, um, and and that sort of sadism that that is channeled through him is just so great. Uh, but the film ultimately is really confused, I think, about what it wants to be. And, and I, I felt like I was watching so many different movies that didn't really lock in to, uh, to any one uh, central piece. And it it's ultimately falls apart with this woefully poorly articulated love story uh, that makes the film just schizophrenic. Which I think is something that they felt obligated to add. I think Doug, Dudley Nichols, who wrote the screenplay, um, kind of... I don't know if it was a, a, a dictate by Daryl Zanuck, who wanted a love interest in the story, but my understanding is the novel uh, by Jeffrey Household uh, does not have that character, or he might meet up with a female who kind of helps him out of a out of a pickle that he gets himself into at one point, but I don't believe that it's uh, any sort of romantic relationship at all. And I, I think by adding that, it just really weakens the whole thing. Yes, and and I think that the book is more about the uh, the sense of survival uh, that happens in the woods. It's much more about sort of that that tale of survivalism uh, and and not so much this the tale of of romance. It's it's an well, interesting read. You can download it. It for it's it is available. A lot of, uh, some of these movies that we've talked about, the original material is not available, and it's other than used bookstores. But this one, in fact, is uh, you can get the book uh, on Kindle and and check it out. It it actually reads really really well, and I think uh, Houseman has a or Household has a, a terrific style. Well, it's more kind of a first person storytelling, isn't mm-hmm, it? Like mm-hmm. just all from uh, Thorndike's. Uh, perspective really right 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 yeah I, it, it's it seems like um an interesting tale to tell and uh maybe well and i know there was a remake later I, i'd be curious to see if uh if there was a way to kind of tell it in a stronger way that actually uh worked better but um it is you know it is very interesting and i can only imagine in 1941 when the neutrality act is still in effect and the u.s is trying to kind of remain 
uh, passive about everything to see a film like this in movie theaters. I mean, we had Chaplin doing The Great Dictator a little before this, and that kind of also kind of skirted things. But it was, you know, it was comedy, and I think he probably got away with it. Um, here, I mean, I can only imagine that, like, a story being told about people that are so present in all the news of the time and, and uh, just what sort of impact that would actually have. I, I, I could only imagine how interesting and exciting that would be. I, I think about how I felt when, you know, World Trade Center came out and when Steve Jobs came out. Like, I was really mad. I felt like too soon, you know, too soon. Here we are. Like, I could only imagine how I would have felt had I seen this movie uh, in that period like such a, an enormous amount of uncertainty i i just can't put my head around it yeah it's interesting uh the script ultimately i mean i i i sort of instinctively lay much of the blame uh for the dis my discontent in the film on the adaptation yeah. uh what do you think am i am i putting it in the wrong place Largely, it boils down to the script. I mean, all the problems I have are script-related. Well, I should say, and some performance-related. But um, I think most of it boils down to the script and the way things are written. I think Lang brings a lot of interesting stuff to the film. I mean, as the director, I, I think that he would have uh, paid attention to the script. But then again, I mean, <laughs> I think there's generally some story problems in his film. So I don't know if he was the best at catching any of those kind of structural story problems. Yeah, I think that Nichols, he was... Uh, John Ford's screenwriter. He did a lot of writing for Ford. And John Ford was the one who was supposed to kind of originally direct this before he decided to go with How Green Was My Valley the same year. And uh, Nichols stayed on. And I, I don't know if Nichols is kind of strictly kind of a, a studio writer. Uh, you know, I kind of get that sense a little bit, but I'm not 100% sure. So I don't know if he was really uh, invested in this or what. It was an interesting script. I, I think there was some interesting stuff, but for the most part, I just feel like the additions of some of the additional characters and partic particularly the, the the real strong development of the female character in here just ended up kind of hurting the overall story. We should talk probably about the overall story as as we lay out some of these challenges. The the because I, I think it I think it matters in this this regard. The story is really about this this Captain Thorndike. He is caught uh, immediately uh, prior to pulling the trigger the second time and killing Hitler. Um, he uh, he's taken in. He is he meets this Steve Smith and he is taken and tortured. And he is told that he can leave a free man as long as he signs this particular document. It's a document that it admits that uh, he was there. To kill Hitler uh, under the guidance of, of the British government, right, uh, and it was going to be their tool to incite action, right, against the British, so that Germany would be able to march on Britain. And that was one of my biggest problems: is the fact that you know there's this this document that Keith Smith is desperate to get Thorndike to sign. And it's like he even he even <laughs> traipses across England into the English forests uh, to get him to sign this document, and I'm just like. Why don't they just kill him and forge the signature? I mean, it was just so silly. <laughs> there is this such an amazingly false sense of propriety coming from a guy who has just tortured another man severely. We want the signature to matter, but okay, now we're going to pull out your other fingernail. 
Yeah, it, it just got pretty silly. Um, but then from that point on, they decide, hey, we'll stage this accident. If you're not going to sign this, we're just going to push you off a cliff, which they do. And I was so surprised that they actually pushed a guy off a cliff. I really wasn't expecting that. I was expecting him to escape in some other way. But I have to say, there were some moments in this film with some pretty violent moments where I was really shocked at the lengths that they went to and that the way that the joy that that doctor has in pushing uh thorndyke off the cliff was pretty shocking and i guess it said a lot about kind of the uh the view of the nazis at the time right right it makes them look both incredibly you know violent and incredibly petty yeah uh and and sort of unsophisticated uh all at once stuffed shirts stuffed suits yeah, it was it was very interesting. And so from that point on, you really get Thorndike as he kind of goes on the run trying to get back to England to uh, be safe away from these Germans. And of course, he gets back to England only to find that he's not safe because there are German spies after him still. And, uh, you know, he's pretty much in this place where he kind of assumes that... Um, you know, if he is, uh, if he goes forward to the government, the government is just going to turn him over to the Germans. And I, I don't know, some of that, again, just more story elements that I really just kind of didn't think worked very well. Why, why didn't that one work for you? I, it just seemed silly. I'm like, really? The German government, I mean, the, the British government is going to turn him over for that? I, I don't know. I don't know if I completely bought that. I mean, I know countries have these these arguments about turning uh, criminals over for justice and whatnot. But in a time like this, uh, I don't know. I just had a hard time buying it. I mean, maybe if they're trying to stay on the good side of Germany at the time. Ah, but at the same time, I don't know. I just I just felt like, I don't know. I don't know. It didn't work for me. It worked I, for you? I can I can see you making that argument at The Hague. <laughs> I know you have these agreements <laughs> and whatnot. <laughs> I think The Hague, this the court at The Hague. Law, yeah, yeah they, they really appreciate people who use such sophisticated legal arguments as and whatnot. <laughs> no, I and I agree with you. I think ultimately it was really silly, particularly when they end up meeting, uh, you know, it's his brother, right? Lord Gerald Risborough and, and Lord Lady Alice. Uh, and and it's it's you know Lord Gerald who's ultimately saying, look, you have to disappear. I can't protect you. When when that just felt like the absolute opposite of what I would expect from a head of state. Right. Yeah. It just it's yeah. like I, I thought that's what they're supposed to do is protect its citizens. Right. Uh, right. But along the way, he he ends up running into you know a a, a little cabin boy who helps him out. Uh, lovely uh, Roddy McDowell in an early role. And a, a prostitute, or is she, <laughs> played yeah. by Joan Bennett, uh, who helps him out. And, uh, yeah, and then he kind of, uh, and, I mean, the, really, that's the, that's the story, you know, until he kind of, you know, ends up having to confront these guys when they finally corner him. Okay, and the, uh, the film ends uh, on him ultimately going, returning to Germany to do what he originally was doing only as a sport. I, I, in a way, it's a very, um, very much a motivational sort of film that kind of turns these uh, these countries. I think the idea of the film uh, from some Nazi haters who were making it was, you know, this this whole idea of neutrality in this particular time in the world is a foolish thing to do, and we need to get past that and be motivated, and we need to actively 
get involved. Yes, and I think that is what is, I think that is an interesting statement that the film makes, and it gets back to these themes, right? This this theme of the impossible chase, the relentless pursuit, that the, the mechanics of the villain, in this case the Nazis, the mechanics of the villain are, we're going to punish you until you cannot... Uh, you can't avoid taking action, and that's ultimately sort of the circle of life of this film, that he's already been punished for the crime he didn't commit, and now he realizes the importance of committing it in the first place. Right. Um, you know, Fritz Lang, in terms of his direction of this film, like you said, there are some really interesting things in it, and this, I think we get a lot of this positioning of uh, the, the sort of anti-Nazi uh, agenda um, in this film that, that mi- I, I don't know, I, I almost feel like he missed like you said, he missed some of the central story problems because he was pretty excited about actually releasing a statement film. As such, I mean, he was uh, he was banned uh, from the editing room uh, because he felt that he would inject too much of his uh, his propaganda in it. Yes and no. I mean, he he was kind of. I, I I've heard a different story as to why he was banned from the the editing room, but I believe. The reason that, uh, or I, I believe he ended up kind of sneaking into the editing room with the editor and doing the edits, uh, you know, in the middle of the night anyway. With a separate editor, a different editor. Yeah, so he kind of got his way with the yeah. story yeah. in the end. Which is why, I th- that's sort of why I lead with that, because ultimately, like, this is, this really feels like a Fritz Lang film to me, even though it has this weird, clumsy romance that I just don't get and a lot of story problems. The the look and feel of it, the mechanics of the espionage. I love the chase in and around London, the you know, when we start seeing the the double agents or the, the you know, I think all of that is it screams laying to me. It's just Swiss cheese. And this comes at a time, and we've talked about uh, mostly, in fact, all the films that we've talked about are Lang's German films. This is our first Hollywood film that we have talked about with him, uh, or at least the earliest one. We have talked to Scarlet Street, but that happens a few years after this one. Um, he was really, he left Germany. He, I should say he fled Germany at the height of his popularity. I mean, he was the number one German director. He was the most popular one there. He came inevitably to Hollywood, and he kind of, you know, he wasn't the a, a director with the same stature anymore. And he was still trying to uh, get his foothold in Hollywood. And he'd done a few films, a few westerns, a few other different types of films, and uh, was was not a uh, didn't have the the power that he'd wielded. And so, you know, he was kind of trying to take whatever he could. And this film did get offered to him after John Ford passed on it. And I think that he was smart to nab it because, I, you know, even though it's not a film that, um, that I think I connect with that strongly now, I do think at the time he was the right person to direct this, you know, get this guy who had fled the Nazi party, left Germany, and now he here he is directing an anti-Nazi movie, one of four that he ends up uh, directing. And I, I think that it put him in a good position where, um, especially after the Neutrality Act ended and, uh, you know, the real anti-Nazi movement and the war, you know, U.S. joined the war and everything became... Um, uh, he became a much more uh, popular director because of that. So I think it was a really good choice for him to end up doing this that got him um, 
into the places that he ended up going. And I think that there were a lot of things that he did here that led us to like the noir looks that he does later, like all the dark streets, the the maze-like feel of things, the fog, just all of that. I think he had a lot of that, just the darkness of the characters and the violence. Um, it It is really a Langian film, even if it does have uh, some elements that just didn't quite click for, for us, at least in the present day. Well, and I think, you know, to be fair, I think we get a lot of those same sort of streets in, in M. And, and I mean, it, it, this definitely trends darker, um, but uh, between uh, spies, I, I should say, but in, in spies, which is what I really liked about it. Like, I feel like you can really see the connective tissue uh, between spies and this film, even though they, you know, here we are, um, you know, it was 13 years later, 12 years later. I think it was really, I, I, I love seeing that. And it's the stuff I like the most in this film is the stuff that I attribute so directly to Lang. The stuff that I like the least is the stuff that's so easily attributed to, you know, Hollywood, um, you know, pop culture, um, you know, entertainment paranoia. Absolutely. So do you think it was Lang's hand on the trigger? I have, I have no reason to doubt that. <laughs> I have seems no to me to like the most appropriate hand for him to you to put into the film is the hand on the trigger to shoot Hitler. Yes. I just felt like, gosh, if there is a hand of his in this film, that's the one that, uh, that he should have done. Because there there are a couple of other hands, but they're completely they're meaningless hands, like digging in dirt, <laughs> grabbing right, right. grabbing for an arrow and a hat. Like they're it's <laughs> they're really meaningless. This is this is the the uh, apocryphal hand. Absolutely. Uh, let's do let's talk first shot, last shot. What did you get out of this one? Uh, the first shot in this film is it, it's deep in the forest. We are introduced to the forest. Uh, as as the the camera opens up and the last shot, so we're very close. We're in the forest, and then the last shot, we are high, high above Germany, watching a parachute uh, of our hero fall. Yeah, I think it was a, an interesting um, an interesting parallel of the hunt in both cases. You know, the first shot, you've got that nice uh, wide shot of the forest as as we kind of truck in and then kind of uh, move to the to the right before we start dissolving to the ground and we see the footsteps and then we dissolve again and we see the hunter it's a, it's just you know it's that kind of creeping hunting camera that lang has you know as if as if the camera is hunting the hunter and here it, it's it, but it's kind of these slow passive movements where we don't really see any anything we don't have a sense of of really who it is that we're after. It's just kind of this somewhere in the the forests of Bavaria or whatever the, the title screen says as we open. We just get this forest. And it's it's this interesting kind of hunt at, that as we're searching for something, but we're not sure what. And then at the end of the film, we've got that um, great overhead shot of the parachute dropping down onto the farmlands in uh, Germany, also somewhere in Germany, as now we have a very direct... Uh, hunt that is going to happen now, much like what I was saying earlier about you know it's that sense of kind of the neutrality versus you know directing people to take action, and now we're going to we still don't know um, you know what you know we don't know the where the prey is anymore, but we're going to now actively go in there to hunt it. It is so much, I think, uh, also a statement of control. The opening shot in the woods, we are out of control, right? We, we don't under, you know, we are, we are at lost. 
we are lost outside of our element, of our native sort of civilization, and this thing is just overgrown and weeds and everything. And then the final one, looking down from above, you know, any of these sort of height differentials, uh, it, it is a statement, uh, it's an easy statement of control and power that we are looking down over you, Germany, and that means we are going to finish this, and that's how this movie is going to end with a statement of dominance over and ownership and control over what you believe you are doing. I like that. I like that pairing a lot. And I, I hadn't made that connection until I looked at these two stills side by side. I think that's a... I like this first shot, last shot, Andy. I think I do too. I think it's a really interesting thing to explore yeah. as we talk about these films and look how a, a director uh, decides to um, welcome us into this world and uh, say goodbye to it. Uh, let's talk about the cast. So what did you think of Walter Pidgeon? Oh. I had never seen him before in a film before. This was my first uh, experience with Walter. This was not... I, I didn't find this to be a good film for him. I really... Str- Actually, I take it back. I have seen Forbidden Planet. Funny Girl? Haven't you seen Funny Girl? I haven't. I haven't. Uh-huh. I think Forbidden Planet may have been the only film of his that I've seen. And How Green my, Was My Valley, which came out the same year. You um, haven't... You, ha- you have seen How Green Was My Valley? No, I haven't. You haven't? What about Mrs. Miniver? You haven't seen Mrs. Miniver? I haven't seen that. Andy, I didn't like him in this movie, but now I think we need a, a Walter Pigeon series. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen much of his. I haven't seen Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I haven't seen Advise and Consent. Uh, geez, yeah, he's he's in a lot of stuff that I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, he is. He reminds me very much of a standard stoic leading man, right? Clark Gable and Cary Grant, and I mean, these are the guys who swing in from ropes and then have a bourbon. You know, uh, that's just very much what it felt like. And as such, he was completely a a loss for me as a a big game hunter. Actually, I should say he reminds me very much of the big game hunter, uh, the British big game hunter in something like Tarzan that is ultimately lampooned by animals. Yeah, I think my problem with him, I'm torn if it's him or the script or both. Um, I just felt like he was really kind of casual about everything. He seemed, uh, you know, not too concerned about uh, about anything. I mean, it was weird. Like, as a guy who's on the run, who's being hunted, you know, as the title says, um, he just doesn't seem that concerned about stuff. I mean, I know he, you know, gets roughed up and stuff, but, you know, whether he's kind of on the boat when Roddy McDowell kind of helps him out um, – you know, he's he. It's almost like he always has kind of a little smirk on his face, as if he's, uh, you know, you know, behind the scenes, the actor is just kind of like knows it's all just, uh, you know, for the for a performance. And that was my struggle with him. I I just never bought him as Thorndike. And uh, same thing in the relationship. And, and you know, the relationship was just so poorly written, and the way that he kind of uh, deals with Jerry and treats her like she's a uh, like a child like he it's almost like they wrote um, they felt the need because of the censors I'm sure uh, to write it as a kind of very much a father figure for Jerry and he was always you know demeaning her as if she was a child or you silly little monkey or whatever yeah you know it's just it was it was weird and I just I don't know I really didn't dig him much in the film. Um, toward the end, when he finally has that confrontation with uh, Keith Smith and blows up about, um, you know, yes, I did really intend to kill him, and I, you know, to as this message, blah blah blah, whatever he says, 
I think that was the moment where I finally felt, oh, I have an actor in front of me. <laughs> I don't know. There are two things that fall apart for me. First of all, it's a, it's a script issue, which is I, I don't think the gun should have gone off uh, because I think it would have made his uh, speech at the end much more powerful if we were left with a sense of uncertainty about whether or not he really would have pulled the trigger. Yeah. And I think they took that too far in the opening sequence. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I didn't really attribute to him actually pulling the trigger on purpose anyway in the opening sequence. I attributed that to, you know, really, because he had been tackled, it just kind of ends up going off. Right. No, I, I agree with that. But but the fact that he, and maybe I should say he shouldn't have put the, or we should have seen him reach for the bullet, but not actually get it in the gun or something like mm. that. Like, gotcha. like leave a sense of uncertainty so we don't know. Because by the time he gives that great speech at the end, yeah, of course I was going to kill him. Yeah, I was going to kill him. I didn't know why, but I knew now. That would have been a revelation for us, but yeah. we saw it coming from the right, first right. moments of the film. We knew that was how it was going to end, and I would have loved to have been able to question that for throughout the film. So, yeah, um, I agree. Th- then you know, think about Cary Grant in like Only Angels Have Wings or um, you know North by Northwest. Right here is a guy who can portray that um, that I'm going to wink and a smile you to death, but I'm going to do it in character, and I'm going to pull this off to a point where you you believe that I am in the middle of the jungle or you believe that you know i'm running down a an airway absolutely Uh, and and this is a this is just one of those where i i just don't think he he was right for this role plus he had horrible moments where like you want to get choked again yes he's talking to jerry it's like wow really why would you say that (laughs) yeah pretty horrible pretty horrible joan bennett uh is the central failing of the film for me I really like her in the film. I actually like her <laughs> character. Um, I I just she's just you know it's like she was on the wrong soundstage and and stepped into the wrong movie. You know I actually liked her despite her terrible Cockney accent. Um, it's just I she just didn't fit. There's nothing about this character that fit in this film. Okay, I have to change my my perspective then because I you know. I was really stuck on the fact that this was a character that didn't fit in the script, in the story, played by a woman who didn't look like she fit, with an accent that certainly didn't sound like she fit, in a relationship <laughs> that didn't know what it was, right? So there there was no... There was nothing about her. Is she a prostitute or a child? Uh, is she a Cockney or is she... <laughs> Faking it, uh, you know, it was, it was just why, what was her reason to be there? I think the film was doing right fine on its own as an espionage, as a thriller, and it her part, this romance was overlong and uh, it 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 didn't lend any weight to the story. Yeah, see, I was trying to talk myself out of not liking it, I think I talked myself into it even more. Yeah, no, I, you did a good job um, because I think you're right. There's nothing about it that works. I just, I guess I just like Joan Bennett and I don't think that she's horrible in the role. And in fact, I think the moment of the two of them on the bridge was a very touching moment. I actually liked that quite a bit um, because I, I felt the connection between the two and I could tell that she wanted to a little bit more and the cop kept kind of pushing her back. I liked that moment quite a bit. And also, I really liked that, this just sounds terrible, but I liked that the film was uh, took it to such a dark place that the villains actually track her down and kill her. Um, yeah. I wasn't, I, I actually kind of wasn't expecting them to do that. Um, 
it, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I thought it was pretty, uh, uh, kind of bold. I don't know. And it's not like, you know, I, on the one hand, I was like, well, maybe because she was a prostitute, the, they felt, you know, the only way to, to justify the character is to kill her. Um, but I don't, I don't think it was that because I, you know, with the sewing machine in her room and everything, they were doing everything they could to make her not look like a prostitute. I don't know. So I, so she had some moments that I liked and I, I generally like watching Joan Bennett. I think that's what I was just going to ask you, Andy, because I, I almost found myself liking Joan Bennett here when I realized what I was really liking was Joan Bennett in Scarlet Street four years later. I no, I like her in this. I just, I just don't think that she fits in this film at all. And I, I mean, I, you could take pretty much the whole performance and everything and put it somewhere else. And I could just enjoy watching that. Like Oliver <laughs> Twist. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just so funny. No, but uh, I did like that. And actually, it again a moment that completely didn't fit at all. But when she was talking to Heather Thatcher as Lady Risborough, that I I just really cracked up at that scene. Again, I shouldn't have been cracking up in this film. This was not the film where cracking up was appropriate. <laughs> but but she it was, was a really funny good. scene. And Heather Thatcher then had the best moment, the best line in the whole movie. <laughs> She looks at her husband, and he, and she's just like, you know, you know, something. Take him to the Razas. <laughs> He's like, what the Razas? What's the Razas? It's the cops. You know, a dick. <laughs> For me, the highlight was her uh, bouncing on the couch when uh, Joan Bennett goes in and bounces up and down on the couch. I think, uh, uh, I I think Heather Thatcher's look is enough. Uh-huh. At that exchange, <laughs> yeah. it was just—it was really good. And so, in spite of that, that sequence introducing her to the Lord and Lady was really terrific and and a great sort of comic break. Yes. Again, did this film need a comic break? Was it appropriate <laughs> for this film? I don't think so. But it was like it's it's one of those things where it's it's a part that works, but it's not in benefit of the whole. All right, George Sanders. Anything else to say about George? No, I just I just love him. But I, you know, even when he's you know doing these incredibly you know, like just you know speechifying moments, and I mean, I, I feel like George Sanders ended up becoming one of those actors who, because of his grandiose big performances in films like this, um, was the sort of person that that decades later people would make fun of. For you know, I, I you know, instantly I, it came to my head the moment in The Incredibles, and I know it's not a spy film, but again, you've got the bad guy who's just like, "Oh, you caught me monologuing again." <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of felt that with George Sanders, and I love that he actually goes, "Today, Europe; tomorrow, the world." I know, that was, was the like, highlight. Like, Somebody actually says that in a movie, and he's serious <laughs> about it. It's not a joke. <laughs> Oh, maybe laugh. Oh, that's pretty good. Yep. <laughs> so, but he's the perfect sort of person to do that. So, yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> How about uh, John Carradine? You know, every good bad guy should make sure to have his carrier pigeons handy. <laughs> oh, man. Another thing that I think might have worked better in the time. But uh, yeah, when he sees him and pulls his pigeon out to send a message. I know. Uh, I had a good, good. A good chuckle it's at that. Pretty yeah. good. We do like uh, like some John Carradine. Yeah, we've uh, we've seen quite a bit of of him lately. It feels I mean, like right this, in a row. Uh, yeah, two of them uh, the in our thirty nine series, and then this one. So he was popular at the time. Young Roddy McDowell. Yes, wasn't he cute? He was. I don't know adorbs. what he was doing with his tongue. <laughs> I don't know. Did you find yourself trying to do that? I did actually. <laughs> 
But I could hear uh, the director, oh, well, give him some business to do. You know, do yeah. something so you're not looking like you're overacting. <laughs> Although he pretty much always looked like he was always. overacting. It's like, wow, these these bad guys have to be completely blind to, to not see Roddy McDowell with his gawking expressions as he looked at things. Well, and the, the really subtle move with his foot to cover the catch <laughs> right. with the rug. Really subtle. Uh, exactly. Practically ballet move. Exactly. Uh, so it was good to see him, though. Uh, I, yeah, I enjoy yeah. seeing Roddy McDowell as a young man. Do you know what his uh, full name is? Um, uh, Roderick. Let's say Roderick, because that's Roderick, a, Andrew, yeah. Anthony, Jude, McDowell. Oh, I wouldn't have gotten any of the middle ones. That's, that's quite <laughs> I could have given you Roderick McDowell. Quite a name. He also was in How Green Was My Valley. Another big so. year for uh, Roderick. Yes, yeah. This was, uh, I mean, he had started working in 38, so he had already done, uh, geez, uh, looks like about uh, nearly 20 movies before, by the time he got to Manhunt. So, yeah. Wow. He's a guy who's been in a lot of things. He certainly has. Lots yeah. of things, including A Bug's Life. This Carl Eckberg sort of cemented himself uh, in the role <laughs> as Hitler. Yeah, he is uncredited, but he plays Adolf Hitler in the beginning of this film. And uh, and he continued to play Hitler. He only, uh, looks like, according to IMDb, he had only been in 23 films. None of them credited. They were always uncredited. So I, I, he's kind of a bit player, but apparently he had the look. And he played Hitler five times in those 23 <laughs> roles. He played it in Citizen Kane, The Wife Takes a Flyer, Once Upon a Honeymoon, What Did You Do in the War, Daddy?, and of course, this. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, he played Hitler in a film called "What Did You Do in the War, Daddy?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, add no, that funny. to the list, Andy. <laughs> oh, too funny. Let's talk about production. Daryl Zanuck. Yeah, uh, good old 20th Century Fox. Um, this was um, one of those studio pictures. If you go through the credits here, you'll see a lot of names that uh, Fox used on a lot of their movies. He, uh, we already talked about the sort of contentious relationship that they they um, that he had with uh, with Fritz, uh, but uh, apparently it was compounded by a rather crazy production schedule. Yeah, the uh, this was one of those things. Like you said, they really wanted this to stay timely. And, I mean, the book was written in 39, and uh, so there was a little time to develop it. But by the time they really got the ball rolling with this thing in late 1940, I mean, they just really just decided to just push hard and fast with it. They actually started production in March 1941, and the film debuted June 13th, 1941. Whoa. That is nuts. Whoa. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I can say, you know what? I'll chalk it up maybe to the speed with which they did this production as to why perhaps they skipped over some of the story issues. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, that's just nutty, nutty schedule. The film actually uh, is is one of the, f is the first war film to attract any attention of the Hayes board. Uh, the Production Code Administration. And it was about these concepts that we already mentioned, the fact that the, there was torture, pronounced torture in the film, uh, and prostitution portrayed, uh, I guess, intimated in the film through Jerry's character. The What is interesting about this, I think, in the uh, is, is his memo, Joseph Breen's memo, 
uh, says that the film is unacceptable on two major counts for excessive brutality and gruesomeness, especially during its representation of Thorndike's torture by the Germans, which I, I think is of note in the, the actual portrayal of it that we only see his shadow, this tortured body's shadow, as they're talking to him, which I thought was a really nice way to, to <laughs> it was a really nice way to portray it. Um, anyway, and prostitution for the indications that Jerry was a prostitute, uh, and and in the finished film, the presence of the sewing machine uh, was added to her apartment uh, again to imply that she was, um, you know, she was a seamstress, not a not a prostitute, but uh, really she was. She was much more uh, recognized as a prostitute with the jacket that she was wearing. She always had this uh, coin purse around her wrist. Apparently those were, I wouldn't know, but apparently those were things that uh, were associated (laughs) with prostitutes. But finally, the thing I think that was most interesting in this memo, the story is unlike any story which has been submitted to us in recent years in that in this script, the Nazis are characterized as brutal and inhuman people, and the Englishmen, or Englishmen, are the sympathetic characters. It resembled propaganda films from World War I, and that a great segment of public thought would object to it as inflammatory. Again, the U.S. had yet to enter the war, and so I think those are really interesting complaints. I didn't know a whole lot about the Neutrality Act. I knew the U.S. was trying to kind of stay out of things for a while. I didn't know how it was affecting the film industry, and I found it really interesting that they were kind of policing these sorts of things because they didn't want, you know, to inflame any situation. And so it's really interesting that they were really dancing around the issues here and trying to make sure that, you know, it wouldn't offend people in a time when Nazis were, you know, crushing Poland and and just doing horrible atrocities. So it's very interesting uh, that this was kind of the way that... Uh, the world was shaped at the time. And and uh, I can, again, I can only imagine being in the movie theater at the time and seeing this film and just what it would do for uh, just kind of the mentality of people watching it. And it's it, I, the debates that it would spark, like, oh, yeah, we should definitely go jump in and then fight, fight those Nazis. No, no, no. Are you kidding me? We don't want to turn it, this into another world war. You know, I, I it's, it's just such an interesting thing for me. So, I, I mean... I love that about this movie. You know, it's just such an interesting, it it holds a very interesting place in history. Especially because we were still so, so close to World War One that this is, this is just a, uh, just a crushing kind of display of, of bad timing. Yeah. Um, But I, I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed that, that part of it. And again, I think that's, that's what makes the film interesting to talk about. Cinematography, Arthur Miller uh is uh, he's he's one of a one of a handful of really really great classic cameramen yeah they say that he's one of hollywood's most accomplished lighting cameramen he was mastered black and white uh, clearly we see some amazing shadow play in here a lot of great fog stuff he seemed like the sort of uh, dp that would work with Lang really well. Although, oddly, I don't think they ever ended up working together again. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure why that is. But uh, yeah, unless I'm missing something, just looking through their uh, filmographies, I don't see any other uh, connections between the two of them. But yeah, I mean, How Green Was My Valley? Again, another person who worked on that film. The Oxbow Incident a few years later and Gentleman's Agreement. Uh, he did a lot of great stuff working all the way into the early 50s. And uh, he, yeah, he's just one of those guys who 
um, just shot a lot of films that uh, looked great. Uh, uh, you know, very busy in the 30s too. I mean, he was just you know from the early days of cinema in starting in 1909, he had been uh, you know shooting stuff. So um, pretty solid uh, director of photography here. How does how do we feel about Alan McNeil, editor? It's it's the whole you know battle in the editing room sort of thing. I I'm curious about how you know how these different people kind of saw the film um, coming together if different people were kind of editing it around the clock. It's like a, you'd think that they would realize that other people were working on it. So I'm I'm curious about how that works. <laughs> how do they get away with that? How does he, how do we get away with a story like uh, you know that Lang and Gene Fowler are in there editing the film at night? What is Alan doing during the day? Just yeah. I must be losing my mind kind of an event? Is this a it, it's like a, a bad sitcom. Yeah, I'm really curious how that works. Um, that's one of those stories I'd love to learn a little bit more about to really try to figure out exactly what was going on there. But I think he does good service. How, however this gets got edited, I think he did good service. Lang, let's just say Lang did good service to his own vision uh, in, in most of the most of the film. Yeah, I agree. And there is a there is that great sequence on the bridge that I just I really like. And and there are a number of sequences where he's trying to get rid of her, which is just ridiculously condescending, but the look of those sequences is really good. Well, and even the train, I mean, you know, the the whole train chase. I thought that was uh wonderful and the kind of the hiding in the hunt, the tunnel and just the way that that was shot, the the blackness of everything going on in that tunnel as uh, as um Thorndike is running from uh, the tall man, you know, Mr. Jones, John Carradine, um, and he's hiding in the darkness. And, and just the way that the, there's no music, it's just it's just the editing and the pacing of these actors as they kind of are hiding in the shadows and, and fighting. And, and uh, it's it's a pretty shocking death, and it's but it's also taught. I, I found that whole sequence just kind of riveting and um, very energized, considering how um, how paced it was. And I think pacing is is a, a great point. I mean, the film, interestingly, is it's an hour and 43 minutes. Uh, how does that compare to last week's? Do you happen to remember how much that was? Because the first two were over two hours. Yeah, M, you know, the, the restored version of that is nearly two hours, one hour, about one hour and 50 minutes or so. Well, so, so this I mean, is pretty close. But this one, in terms of overall pacing, it actually felt pretty good, particularly when, when Joan Bennett wasn't on screen. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to keep turning the shiv. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, but it is paced well. I, I, I do agree, and I, I think that's something about the film, and maybe it's the nature of a manhunt. You know, you kind of got this this journey sort of story as your character is moving from place to place. But uh, um, no, it's paced well, and I, you know, I think the music helps at times. I think Alfred Newman's score can work. Uh, I don't. Uh. Well, here's here's the thing that I'm going to tell you that I, I think I did hear um, them talking about on the commentary. Um, Alfred Newman has uh, has a bit of a thriller score in this film that does work. That being said, they also use some. I don't know if it's canned uh, studio music, but kind of the romantic um, uh, you know threads that kind of weave in and out. Uh, with Jerry's character, I think it, it's just kind of it's almost like what you now have is just kind of the stock library music. It, it just uh, it's that for the studio. It was just repurposed over and over and over again. A nightingale sang in Berkeley Square, and 
if you know anything about a nightingale saying in Berkeley Square, you know that the only version that is appropriate to listen to is the Manhattan transfer version of a nightingale saying in Berkeley Square, <laughs> and all other versions, including that used way, way too much in this film, is uh, sacrosanct. It's funny that Manhattan transfer is the first that you have to listen to. Honestly, I don't know if I've ever heard that song, but I definitely could tell. Um, you know, it's. Are it's you di- just, did you just diss on Manhattan Transfer? Do we need to do a Manhattan Transfer well, I feel series? Like, I guess I think we should. <laughs> uh, I'd be curious what that series consisted of. <laughs> uh, but no, I. I mean, I think that there are probably some standards, uh, some standard cover versions of the song that uh, that might. I mean, honestly, I had never heard the song until you brought that up. I had to go listen to the song and then try to place where where it popped up in the film, but. I don't know. I guess I, I don't care enough about that song to really be too concerned about it. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the difference between, you know, a strong composer and and you know library music that you have to use because you, know, you can't pay somebody to write everything. When you're making a film in three months, I guess. That's yeah, what you take get, what right? you can get. Right. <laughs> Uh, how did this, uh, did this one, it was, I know it was made uh, again immediately after as a radio drama, the Philip Morris Playhouse in 1942. Yeah, they did that a lot with a lot of, uh, films where the actors would come back and be on the radio and stuff. But yeah, then there was a a 1977 TV movie, not called Manhunt, but actually called Rogue Mail, made more, I suppose, more directly from the actual, uh, source material, uh, starring Peter O'Toole as the hunter, John Standing as Keith Smith, Alastair Sim, and Harold Pinter. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know too much about that, but Peter O'Toole in a TV movie, I don't know, it really piqued my curiosity. Yeah, I would like to see that. Yeah. Uh, overall, how did it do? This is, you know, I gotta say, some of these movies are, are pretty frustrating with how little out there, uh, how little information there is out there for numbers. Again, just like M last week, there was nothing for this film. It did open June 13th, 1941, um, and I did read that it was moderately successful. I know uh, people really kind of latched on to the whole idea of this um, uh, a film so current, and uh, it it got some good reviews and everything. Moderately successful is all I found, unfortunately. All right. Well, we should probably rank it. Yeah, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody, and log into your account there, and you're going to search. You can find uh, this one. This one. This one shows up. Uh, just just search for Manhunt. <laughs> and there are many. Uh, pick the one in 1941, and there you know the drill. You're going to rank it filmo a filmo, and we'll see if it can get past your Caddyshack block or your Oh Brother block, whatever your block is. Let's see if you can get it into the top half. I think the key with this Manhunt is you have to remember this is Man Space Hunt. It's not Manhunt. That's right. That would be a very different thing. Uh, well, and I think normally the word is Manhunt, as in one word, like when the police are on a Manhunt. Yeah. So it's interesting that this is Manhunt. It's kind of uh, you know with that space in there. Right. Anyway, first up, we've got the block. We've got Manhunter oh, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's going to stay on the bottom half, Andy. Yes, it is. Oh Brother for me, too. Manhunt or The Sandlot. The Sandlot. Sandlot. Yeah. This is, a, it's a, you know, it's a tough one because I respect this film for the place that it has in history. Um, but I just didn't like it all that much. Yeah, I'm not gonna. It's not one I'm gonna seek out and watch again. Uh, Manhunt or the Hudsucker Proxy? Oh, a, a Hudsucker, absolutely. I can't wait to see what you say. 
you know you can't say manhunt. I, I'm actually going to say manhunt. If for no, I mean, watching you, the opening moment of this film, like I, I think there are moments in this film that that are strong, and it is it is a Fritz Lang film, and the problems I have, you know, I, I have problems with both of these films. I guess is the bottom line. I have serious issues with both of them. Manhunt, I, I have some more compelling uh, things going on there for me. All right, let's do it. All right, one, one two, two, three, three paper, rock. as it yeah. should be. Okay, as it, for, as I, it should be. I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> Manhunter, Indiana Jones, and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Man I'm going to say Manhunt. Yeah. Manhunt, or Yee, a one and a two. I am saying Yee for sure. <laughs> I'm curious where you're going to go with this one. I can't believe this, Andy, but I'm going to say Yee Yee. Hey, look at that, Pete. <laughs> this, this may be a first. <laughs> I'm growing. That's so great. Manhunter Christmas in Connecticut. I'm going to take a little Christmas. Christmas, yep. Manhunt or The Blob, Steve McQueen. The Blob. The Blob for sure. Manhunt or The Hound of the Baskervilles. A little uh, Carradine uh, duo here. I'm going to say Manhunt. So am I. There we are, number 228. Definitely on the lower end of our chart. In fact, I think it might be safe to say this is the lowest of our Fritz Lang films that we've talked about so far. It it might be safe? I think it is safe. (laughs) I think it's safe. (laughs) Yeah. Safe. Uh, This one, yeah, this just didn't hold up. I thought we were climbing a mountain, Andy. I was so excited about last week's film that I I thought— we just were going to keep going up and up and up, and I, I couldn't do it. What does this do for your Letterboxd, however? Um, Letterboxd for me, two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's still some strong Langian stuff going on in here. You've got that fantastic open. There are some, uh, just some moments. I mean, like the train, the the battle in the uh, the train tunnel. I mean, there are moments in here that I think are really strong if you could divorce it from all the problems the script has. So you know, I'm know, right at two and a half. Overall, the film holds together so poorly. It is so many films going on at once in here. I I was at one and a half. Oh, wow. uh, I would That's give it a good. solid two. I mean, one and a half, and it falls in the lower two hundreds. Like that feels about right to me. That's fine. I would have been two. higher than Hudsucker for me. So you know, I think two and a half is fair for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fine. All right, okay, so one and a half for you, two and a half for me. There you go. There you go. Where do we go from here? We are going to uh, finish up this Fritz Lang series. You know. I to say man there's been some really interesting films even if we haven't liked them all that much uh really interesting uh films to look at here and we're going to be finishing with one that i think i i enjoy it i think that it's one that for lang was not um it was kind of more of a do it for the studio sort of film um but uh, it's ministry of fear and uh that's uh one that i enjoy i'm looking forward to talking about that one and finishing up the series with it I'm looking forward to that, too. That's another one I have not seen. Uh, and so uh, I can't wait. You think I'm going to like it? What's your bet? What's your bet? I, you know, I don't think you'll like it as much as M. That's all. But I think you'll like it more than Manhunt. Are we going to take, uh, <laughs> are we gonna take odds on my star rating? Uh, three. <laughs> okay. All right. It's, you, you heard it here. <laughs> I'm going to rate it a three, according to Andy. 
We'll see if he wins, if he behaves well. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Until then, Andy, I think you know I got to go to bed. But Pete, you promised me a pin for my head. <laughs> Andy, Amazon, Amazon giveth. Uh, I've got a one star from uh, from our friend Walter left on uh, fairly recently, June 8th, 2015. He says, Fritz fritzed out on this one. And you'll notice the play on words. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's why Walter is a strong Amazon uh, crit- critic. You know, I, I should say, as an aside, I'm no foreigner to these kinds of plays on words. Because while you may never say Andy Andied out on this one, you could possibly get away with Peter Petered out on on this one. I, he could, yeah. So I I get Fritz, Fritz. For Pete's sake, just do it already. I'm just saying, <laughs> some of us are saddled. You get did you, me. I, did you get it? I threw one at you. <laughs> oh, I got it. You weren't even paying attention. Come on, man! Dreadful you just get script. These all the time. <laughs> Dreadful script, dreadful direction, annoying nonstop music, total amateur time, waste of great talents like George Sanders, John Carradine, and Walter Pidgeon, who sleepwalks his way through this imbecilic film. Bless you, Walter. Bless you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got a one star by Lynn Alexander, who says a clunkhead survives somehow. My goodness, the stuff the movie makers showed in this film in the name of drama stretches the disbelief. I like Walter Pigeon, but in this film he is a walk-on, supposedly a great white hunter with a lifetime of experience hunting big game. This guy is a complete clunkhead. In this movie, while those who hunt him are hot on his heels, he slams doors, grabs a girl, and makes her scream. I guess so the Nazi will know where he is. He goes into dark, deserted, dead-end places with his pursuer ten steps behind him, and even in the wilderness makes as much noise as a crashing herd of elephants. Yes, I exaggerate, but each of these situations happens in the film and completely killed any belief in the big game hunter. As others have noted, the plotline is a bit clunky as well, where, for example, the story jumps from the guy dying in a hospital to bailing out from a British bomber over wartime Germany without the pilot's authority. The other area of disbelief was in casting Pigeon as an aristocratic Englishman and then putting him into scenes with British actors who could carry the role. Why does Hollywood do that? By the way, as the Cockney street girl... Joan Bennett was superb. (laughs) You are kidding. The problem, as I see it, is in the director's vision of a good story gone wrong. And why did I feel that Pigeon merely mouthed his lines? Pigeon was supposed to be British. Sanders was supposed to be German. And Bennett was supposed to be East Ender. That's right. That is ridiculous. (laughs) It is all ridiculous. Uh, Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.